0: Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 4, the writer says, By faith Abel offered God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it he being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. This chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, began with an explanation, if you will, or a definition of faith in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He begins with a definition of faith or an explanation of faith, and now he's going to continue with examples of faith in verse 4 all the way down to verse 35. The writer is going to explain what they did. He's going to talk about what they endured and why they endured and what they received. Abel gave the Lord an acceptable offering in verse 4. Enoch left the earth without dying in verse 5. Noah survives a great flood in verse 7. In the chapter, some of the examples of faith are going to endure hardship, torture, ridicule, flogging, imprisonment, stoning. One person is going to be sawn in two. Another is going to be killed by the sword. Most are going to experience extreme poverty. Others will see the invisible city of God in verse 10 and verses 13 through 15 and 16. They're going to believe that suffering for the sake of Christ was better than all the riches that this world has to offer in verse 20. All will be looking forward to their own resurrection in verse 35. And what did they receive? In the past... The temporary and earthly approval of God. And in the future, in the eternal future, approval of God. And so the chapter begins with the meaning of faith in verse 1. And then it continues with the reward of faith in verse 2. And then our basic understanding of of faith in verse 3. And by faith, we understand that God, remember in verse 3... Made the worlds. And I told you before that that meant the aeons or the ages or the unfolding, if you will, not only of the universe, but of human history. By faith, we understand that God created everything that exists. And now the writer is going to speak about the spiritual power of faith. And he's going to illustrate that power in the story of Abel and in the story of Enoch. And what is the spiritual power of faith? Well, the power of faith is the message of the glorious gospel, the glorious hope that God has given us since the beginning of time. And the power is twofold, and it's given in the most meaningful way possible By showing us how this power can take hold in our own lives. How we can be different men and women. In this passage you're going to see how faith gives the believer power to be counted righteous in verse 4 or that is found in a right standing or a right relationship with God. How faith gives the power to walk with God and then deliverance from death in verse five. And how faith gives the believer power to please God. And so think about that. Imagine if you could only have a few things that you get to take out of this world. Can you imagine if someone would say to you, if you could have anything you want, What would you want? How many of us would say, when I come to the end of my life, I want to be able to look at the Lord. And the Lord says, I am so pleased with who you are. I accept you. I forgive you and I accept you, period. Doesn't that make sense to you that now all of a sudden life can have meaning and purpose And also that you get to walk with God. And when you come to the end of your walk, you're going to be living with God forever. And that you could have the power to please God in the way that you think, in the way that you speak, in the way that you live. And so look at the faith of Abel in verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. When I was preparing this study, one of the things that jumped out at me in this particular passage in a brand new way was, why doesn't this story begin with Adam and Eve? Why does the writer of Hebrews begin the discussion with Abel and with Cain? And I think I understood. As a matter of fact, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this story, it's found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read it to you. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. You may not even understand what that means. But earlier in the chapter, God promised that the woman would give birth to someone who would come and help them. Eve believes, perhaps, that she's given birth to the Messiah. Can you imagine that you believe the promise has become true? Because now you're pregnant and now the child has come and this child is the child is going to rescue you. It says, then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now think about it. Prior to the flood, every single human being is a vegetarian. Why would anyone raise sheep? Perhaps for clothing, but certainly not to eat. And Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in verse 3, and it says, And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. It's an idiomatic expression that means... And his face reflected what was inside of his heart. And in verse 6 it says, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field... That Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The text doesn't tell us exactly why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's rejected. It's been the matter of profound debate and inquiry. Why was one accepted and the other rejected? But we are given clues. In the Hebrews text, we're told that Abel's sacrifice was a sacrifice that was offered by faith. And the sacrifice that Abel offered was accepted by God. And that God counted Abel's sacrifice as righteous. How did God accept people prior to the coming of Christ and the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. This is a question that I get asked constantly. And it's a great question. Because the answer in part is the way that God accepted people prior to coming the coming of Christ was he accepted them based on his terms. Based on his revelation. Based on what he required. Based on a sacrifice by blood. And based on grace. And based on the promise of a person. In other words, the way that God accepted people. Was that they would come to him by faith. But not just any faith but a peculiar kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that has the power to be counted as righteous. And when the Bible uses the term righteous, what it means is a right standing with God. It doesn't mean you're perfect in your thinking or or in your speaking or in your behavior. It means the way to be seen by God and accepted by God. Faith has the power to allow people to be counted as righteous. But like I said it's not just any faith. But it's, a, it's the faith that's prescribed by God. This becomes the bottom line. Every human being will always and forever come to God one of two ways. On their own terms. Or on God's terms. These are the broad categories of acceptance Or rejection. Abel approaches God. And worships God. Exactly as God instructs. Abel offers a blood sacrifice. Even in Hebrews chapter 11. Read it for yourself. It says. By faith. Abel offered to God. A more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous god testifying of his gifts and through it and th- through it he being dead still speaks when the text says it's a more excellent sacrifice than Cain it begs the question again why I'm going to suggest to you that whatever the reason, it seems to include this issue of faith. That Abel comes in a heart condition and Cain comes in a heart condition. Abel brings a blood sacrifice. Cain brings the sacrifice of the offering of his own hands. You'll remember that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they became aware that they were naked. Their nakedness became a symbol of their conscious awareness of sin in Genesis chapter 3 verses 9 and 10. You'll remember the story in the Bible where they sin and they are naked. And remember the Lord says to them, who told you you were naked? Now we laugh at that because again, in the Bible when God asks a question, is it because he doesn't know the answer? That can't be the right answer. It must be because he's inviting a person to engage in a dialogue as they talk about their condition. Our father and mother, Adam and Eve, attempted to cover up their nakedness. Many of you who have read the passage know that they found a tree. It's the first tree, by the way, mentioned by name, other than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's a fig tree. And they sew fig leaves together in an attempt to cover up their own shame. In an attempt to cover up their own nakedness. In other words, they knew that something was wrong. And they're trying to make a, provide a mechanism in order to hide their shame, cover their nakedness. God loved them. We don't actually find that out until 21 chapters later, if you will, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 22, where the first mention of love takes place in the Bible, where God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom you love. First mention of love in the Bible is the love of a father for his child. But we can, I think, understand that the overarching testimony of the Bible is that God loves us. He loves his children. God covered their nakedness by killing an animal, by shedding blood, and this shedding of blood pointed to a greater shedding of blood, a future sacrifice, a future death, the sacrifice of Jesus. We're given a glimpse from the very beginning that sinful human beings will have to do one of two things. They'll either have to bear their own sin or someone will have to bear their sin as a substitute. Since the dawn of human history, people have approached God, either on his terms or on their own terms. The Bible says that Abel believed God, that Abel accepted God's terms, That he comes by faith. The implication is that Cain does not believe God. That Cain does not accept God's terms. Cain wants to approach God, but he doesn't want to approach God on the basis of a blood sacrifice. Remember what we've already learned. Does everyone have faith? Everyone does. You can have incomplete faith. You can have misguided faith. You can have misplaced faith. But everybody has faith. They have a confidence or a trust, whether it's in the God of the Bible or, or the God of their own imagination or their, a God of their own fabrication. But not everyone shares the same faith in the same God and in the gospel of God and in the Messiah of God. So how in the world did Abel know that sinful man had to approach God on the basis of shed blood? How did he know that? Was it the slaughter of an animal by God in the garden to cover up his parents' nakedness? Did Abel receive some divine revelation or instruction from God? Did Abel listen to his parents who told both Cain and Abel that God restored them to fellowship by the killing of an animal and by covering them with an animal's skin like it says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 21? However it happens, whether it's Adam and Eve who reminds them of how God has acted or whether it's by some special act of revelation, Abel approaches God with blood. Cain approaches God with the fruit of his own hands. It's a bloodless sacrifice. And some people might argue, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. God accepted grain offerings in the Old Testament. I remember in the book of Leviticus, where the Bible talks about offerings, and it has a number of different offerings that it talks about. It talks about burnt offerings, and it talks about grain offerings and it talks about peace offerings and it talks about sin offerings and when it's talking about grain offerings it's a free will offering it's flour and oil and frankincense and unleavened bread and wafers and fine flour so why does god accept it in 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 leviticus but he rejects it at the opening of, of of the bible how am i supposed to think about this and it is true that God accepted grain offerings in the book of Leviticus. But it's also true in the book of Leviticus that people approached God by faith, they approached Him with blood. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews has already said, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or no forgiveness. George Cutting points out, quote, It was not the personal excellence of Abel that God looked at in counting him righteous, but the excellence of the sacrifice that he brought and the faith that he put in. In it, and that becomes the key concept. It isn't just simply the sacrifice that's brought, although that's part of it. It's the sacrifice that's brought and then the faith that's put in the sacrifice that's brought. And this gives us a picture because guess what? Remember, how do you come to God? You come to God on on the basis of what he has prescribed. And God has prescribed what we've already learned in the book of Hebrews, that you come to God on the basis of Jesus, on the basis of his sacrifice and the faith that you place in it. So we see a window open up in the Old Testament. The window opens up as, as, as the writer of Hebrews begins to remind the Hebrew people that Abel brings a more excellent sacrifice because, number one, it's the, it's the sacrifice that God prescribed. It's a blood sacrifice. And then Abel's confidence or faith that that sacrifice would, in fact, be acceptable to God. And you've got to understand something. When the Bible speaks of blood, it's not just any blood. It's a special kind of blood. The blood has to be innocent. Remember in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The writer of Hebrews points out that the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood of of Jesus is an innocent blood. So the, the blood has to be shed. The blood must be innocent. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus says, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So think about it. The blood has to be innocent. The blood has to be shed. And then the blood has to be applied It says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. But there's lots of people who don't want to come to God on that basis. They want to come to God on the basis that they're religious. That they're spiritual. They want to come to God on the basis of doing good things with their own hands. But the Bible says that salvation is always through a person. In Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 we read. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is by blood, but it's not a blood that's disconnected from a person. In Acts chapter 4, verse 2, Paul said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given by men, whereby we must be saved it isn't that we can be saved by just any blood or just by any person in 1 thessalonians 5 9 it says for god has not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by the lord jesus And then in Hebrews 5, 9 earlier, the writer of Hebrews said, and being made perfect or complete, he that is Jesus became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. Now think about that for just a moment, because if Jesus is the author of eternal salvation, is he the author of salvation at the beginning of time and the beginning of humanity? Has Jesus always been the author of salvation? And now we begin to understand something, that people got saved prior to the coming of Christ exactly the same way that they got saved after the coming of Christ, by grace, through faith, in the confident promises that what God said was true. Blood, a person, grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. For the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it says in Titus two eleven. In Titus 2.11, when it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In what way has it appeared? The writer, Paul, as he's speaking to Titus, it says that when Jesus showed up, salvation showed up. And the text says something interesting. God accepted Abel's worship. The context is Abel's offering is, number one, made by faith. Number two, it's accepted by God. What happened? God accepts Abel's sacrifice by faith. And God rejects Cain's sacrifice. I'm going to suggest to you because, number one, it's not made by faith. And number two it's not in the in the prescription that god has required and so what does cain do he kills his brother right cain spills blood but does he offer his brother's blood to satisfy god no that's not what's happening But when he does kill his brother, and his brother dies, and his blood is spilt, does his blood have voice? Is it able to speak? Is it able to say something? Now, I want to ask you a question. Did Cain kill Abel? Because he was a sinner? Or was he a sinner because he killed his brother? Did Cain murder of his brother make him a sinner? Or was he a sinner and it was manifested in the fact that he would kill his brother? Remember what we've already learned in the New Testament? Remember, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? Remember, the Bible has already told us over and over again that what is inside of us will eventually leak out. Why does Cain kill his brother? Because works will always seek to kill grace. Law hates grace. Self-religion will always try to put to death the revelation that God has given on the basis that he will be approached. The self-righteous man hates the truth. The self-righteous person hates the truth that he can't save himself and that in order to be saved, what he has to do is he has to come to God on God's terms. He has to confess that he's a sin. He has to be extended grace and love by his creator. And some people don't want to do that no matter what. They want to come to God on God's terms. You're probably wondering, why am I spending such an Im- um, uh, this, this amount of time on this subject? Because it's going to become important to you every day for the rest of your life as people say... On what basis am I accepted by God? And you need to be able to say, you're accepted by God on the basis of the fact that he loves you and that he sent his son to die for you and that Jesus has wonderfully, wonderfully given himself as a sacrifice to satisfy the just demands that God has. You can be accepted by God on the basis of placing your trust in him. And the person says, I don't don't want to trust him because I'm a good person and I do good things and good deeds. And so what I think I want to do is fabricate my own religion based on my own ideas, based on my own imagination on how I can approach God. And now we begin to understand There's always been two religions, always. There's always been one religion that says, I can come to God on God's terms, or I can come to God on my own terms. And so the author of Hebrews invites the reader to consider that the power of faith has the ability to make you righteous. Think about that for just a moment. In Genesis 15, 6, we read, and he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. In Acts thirteen thirty nine, we read, and by him, that's Jesus, all that believe are justified from the things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so the writers in the New Testament say, you mean you can be accepted by God simply on the basis that you believe that what God says is true about his son and about you. And the, and the New Testament writers say, yes, yes. Now we understand what Paul wrote in Romans 3:23 and 24, when he said, "For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." You'll note something that the reoccurring theme in the Bible is that redemption, being bought back, being bought back, being accepted by God, being made right by God. all of a sudden we see this convergence. It is blood, it is grace, it is a person. And then we see the faith of Enoch. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he didn't see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. We find the story of Enoch, by the way. In the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. And again, the story is very limited. We only get a few, few precious verses. In chapter 5, verse 18, this is what we read Jared lived 162 years and he went to Jared's. No, that's not what it says. Jared lived 162 years. And he begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. We're told that Enoch's father was Jared. In the scriptures, we're told that Adam lived 930 years, and he died, chapter 5, verse 5. Seth lived 912 years, and he died, verse 8. Enosh lived 905 years, and he died, verse 11. Keanin and Mahalal lived 840 years and 830 years respectively. And they died. Adam died. Seth died. Enosh died. Keanin died. Mahalal died. But something happened with Enoch. Something different. It says that Enoch walked with God 300 years and begot sons and daughters in verse 23. And then it says, "So all the days of Enoch were 365 years," Genesis 5:24. And then Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. This leaves the most famous mystery that's told in Sunday school classes all over the country it goes like this the oldest man who ever lived but died before his father did what's the answer the oldest man who ever lived but died before his father did methuselah in genesis chapter 5 he's the oldest man who ever lived but methuselah died before his father did why because enoch never died Enoch, according to the text, it would appear that he had fellowship with God. He walked with God and he talked with God and he had friendship and fellowship with God. Enoch received some kind of promise in the world that Enoch lived in. Everyone appeared to live a very, very long time. But in fact... In in spite of the fact that they lived for a very, very long time, all of them eventually died. Prior to Enoch, there was no record of anyone ever escaping death. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall surely die. Remember, the Lord told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. But God apparently promised Enoch that he wouldn't die. God promised. Enoch believed. What's more reasonable? What's more sane than a creature should believe what the Creator has to say? Enoch will walk and have fellowship with an invisible God for 365 years. But I want you to, again, remember what the text itself says. Before he was taken, he had this testimony. In other words, prior to his disappearance. Prior to his disappearance, he had this testimony that he pleased God. We're going to jump ahead, but we're going to come back because in verse 6 it says, but without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so now we've also understand in verse 5, did Enoch please God? What's the answer? Of course he did. If verse 6 is true, without faith it's impossible to please him, did Enoch have faith? That makes sense. And that in order to come to God, you have to believe that he is. So did Enoch have faith and did, did Enoch believe that a real God existed? A- apparently so. And is God a rewarder of those that diligently seek him? If Enoch is proof, but we're, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But I'm going to suggest to you again. Prior to Enoch, there's no record of anyone escaping death. God apparently promises Enoch that he's not going to die. God promises. Enoch believes. Before he's taken, he's given the testimony that he pleases God. We soon find out that without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so Enoch, by faith, must have found some way to please him. And if faith comes by hearing, and if hearing is by the word of God, and if fellowship must have come, God must have said something to Enoch. And Enoch must have believed whatever it was that God said. Look carefully at the expression. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The fruit of his faith, he didn't see death. The fact of his faith, he was gone. And when he was gone, he was missed. How do we know that? Because prior to his disappearance, everybody looked at him. And everybody watched him. And everybody knew that he pleased God. Sinner and saint alike knew that there was something different about Enoch. And when he was gone, he was missed. When he disappeared... The ones who were left behind went out to look for him. But he was nowhere to be found. Because he was gone. The fruit of his faith and the fact of his faith marked him out as a man whose life was godly in his own generation. And remember, Enoch is living... In one of the most desperate times of human history, that is so wicked and so profoundly evil, that God is going to judge the entire planet. And by the time his father, Methuselah, is dead, the entire planet is going to be wiped out except for Noah, his wife, his three kids, and their wives. He impacted his generation. And I'm wondering if the same could be said about you. Or about the church. I'm wondering if we, as men and women who are called to walk with God, if people would miss us if we were gone. You know, David Livingston gave his life in the pursuit of three things. Exploring. Evangelizing and emancipating john phillips tells the story of how he opened africa to the gospel and he struck a severe blow against the slave trade but above all else he won people to christ and in his lifetime he experienced unceasing criticism because he honored his commitment to christ why was he denounced He left his wife in England. He left his children in England. He went to Africa. He went to the most dangerous places. He made a mark in the world. And when he died in Africa, they buried his heart in Africa. But they took his body back to England to be buried in Westminster Abbey. And to this very day, you can see his shrine. On the day that Livingston's funeral took place, one of England's best-read papers blazed this headline. This is the headline when, when, when he died. Granite may crumble, but this is living stone. The only people who get to be buried in Westminster Chapel are those people who are making this profound impact So what's the point of this story? The point of the story is that faith has the power to give us a day-by-day walk with God that will, in fact, deliver us from death. In what way? Enoch believed God he walked with god he fellowship with god god cared for him and protected him by faith and god took him in what sense we're left with the impression that god didn't that enoch didn't just simply die but he's translated or he's transferred into the very presence of god he experienced what every believer in the lord jesus christ is promised in colossians 2:6 it says As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 11.25, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead. Actually, the text literally says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in in me, though he may die. The implication, he may not. Though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Did Mary die? Yeah. Did Martha die? Yeah. Did all of Jesus' disciples die? Yes. So what in the world did Jesus mean in John eleven twenty five 25, when he said, I'm the resurrection and alive. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He can't be simply talking about the physical passing from this life into the next life. He's got to be talking about the reality that when a person has a right relationship with God in Christ, that eternal life begins at that moment. Eternal life begins at the moment where sin is forgiven and you are in fellowship and relationship with God so much so that even if you physically cease to exist, you Spiritually will never cease to exist. Enoch's faith gave him the longed-for deliverance from death. Think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Abel worships by faith, and so do you. Enoch walks by faith, and so do you. Oliver Green writes, quote, Enoch is definitely a type of the New Testament saints who will be translated when the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air. In the midst of an age of wholesale death, and in an hour darker than any yet known to man, surely that hour is upon us. Surely these are the days known as the beginning of sorrows." The darkest hour is always just before the dawn, and surely the night is far spent. Surely Jesus will come quickly. We do not know the day or the hour of his coming, but we do believe that he's coming soon. And should he come? And should you suddenly disappear? Will people know that you're gone? Will the world be a very, very different place, conspicuous by your absence? The absence in your home, the absence in your work, the absence in school, where you are. I need to ask you a question. Based on what you understand about Abel, And based on what you understand about Enoch, does it seem to you that God loves to be trusted? I think that that's the right answer. He loves to be trusted. And so now, the faith that pleases God. Look what it says in verse 6. But without faith, it's impossible. It's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. This might be one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. If ever you've underlined a passage, it should be this one. If ever you've memorized a passage, it should be this one. Because remember what the passage is saying. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Remember what we've already learned. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of of things not seen. So do you think that the kind of faith that pleases God is the kind that's seen obtained is it is it the kind of miraculous thing if i see a miracle then i'll believe is that the kind of faith if god all of a sudden just simply shows up and says hey you know what i'm the god of the bible and everything that the bible says is true and jesus died for your sins and you know and there's a gigantic 15 foot Angel, glowing red hot like the sun with a flaming sword and and basically the angel says do you believe in Jesus and do you want to spend eternity in heaven with God and you go sure sure is this the kind of faith that pleases God no what kind of faith is he talking about we've already seen the definition in verse 1 It's a a living faith. It's an active faith. This faith knows God. This faith worships God. This faith walks with God. This faith believes God. This is the kind of faith that says yes to what God has said in his word. This is the kind of faith that says yes to Jesus. When Jesus says, won't you come to me? Won't you believe in me? Why does the writer of Hebrews hurry past the description of Abel and Enoch? It's to make this point. The Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest writes, quote, The writer lays down an axiomatic truth. He uses the aorist tense in the infinitive, to please. Read it again. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. The statement is universal in its application and timeless. The idea is, quote, without faith, it's impossible to please him at all. I want you to think about that for just a moment. If this is true, and I think it is true, we might say it another way. There is no other way to please God. I'll repeat that. There is no other way to please God. This is why Paul says with complete confidence in Romans chapter 14 verse 23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You mean the multitude of false faiths are sin? Yeah. You mean everyone who wants to come to God apart from faith will be denied? Apart from grace? Apart from the gospel? apart from blood. See, now we understand. Now we understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. This is why all faith, every faith, that denies the gospel and denies Christ and denies grace to sin, this is why all works-based religions fail to please God. Some of you might be thinking, but they seem so sincere. And I'm willing to concede that they are, no doubt, sincere. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Do you think that Cain sincerely broke up the earth when he was planting the seed? Do you think he sincerely planted the seed and he sincerely watered the seed and he sincerely harvested the seed and he sincerely believed that what he was doing was making an enormous contribution because probably the fact that he broke the ground and he planted the seed and he harvested the grain and that his mother and father and brothers and other people who were living there could partake of it. Do you think that Cain saw what he was doing as a valuable contribution? To the meaning of life. I'm going to suggest to you that he did. What if I even suggested to you that he sincerely brought his offering? And he was sincerely wrong, and it was sincerely rejected. In Enoch's day, God was all but invisible. God was rarely seen, rarely heard. But Enoch will exercise faith. Enoch will live by faith. Enoch will walk by faith. Enoch is going to be taken to to heaven by faith. Now think just for a moment again. For those who want to force faith or fabricate faith or falsify faith, does it make sense to you that you can compel someone to believe something since, it's, since, since in verse 6 it says, but without faith it's impossible to please God. If you coerce faith or manipulate faith or insist on faith, is that the kind of faith that God's going to accept? No. No. Let me ask you a different question. Do you think God will coerce, manipulate, and insist that you love him? What do you think the answer to that is? The answer is no. He will not coerce you. He will not manipulate you. He will not make you love him. Religion can never compensate for a lack of faith. William MacDonald writes, quote, Faith is the only thing that gives God his proper place and puts man in his proper place too. It glorifies God exceedingly, writes C.H. McIntosh, because it proves that we can have more confidence in his eyesight than in our own, unquote. Faith gives us the ability to see what he sees. And so the person who comes to God, again, must believe at least two things. Number one, that he exists. The expression must believe in the original language means necessarily and essential. A.T. Robertson says it's a moral necessity to have faith. The very existence of God is a matter of intelligent faith. This is the person who considers reality, earth, heaven. This is the person who considers what the Bible says about God. And then believes by faith what God says about himself. And what he says about you. And what he says about your future. So again, in verse 6. But without faith it's impossible to please him. For those who come to God must believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The word diligently means... The opposite of half hearted, lazy, complacent, not thinking. Diligent means it's a focus of your time, your attention, your thinking, your heart, your emotion. We pursue the Lord earnestly and we persevere. Remember what the writer of Hebrews is saying. In the midst of hardship, difficulty, opposition. And there's nothing about God. There's nothing about his character. There's nothing about his son. There's nothing about his word that should cause you to doubt him. Everything about God should cause you to trust him. And everything about Jesus should cause you to love him. And what's the reward for those that diligently seek him? It's the same reward that's given to Abel. And that's given to Enoch. Your worship is accepted. And you get to walk with him. And you don't have to be afraid to die. And you're given eternal life. In Matthew's gospel, we're told to hunger and thirst after righteousness. In Matthew 6, 33 and Luke 9, we're, we're told, ask, seek, knock. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open to you. Everyone who asks, receives. The person who seeks, finds. The person who knocks, it will be opened. What's the reward? We get to grow. We get to mature in faith and power. We can practice hope. What does that mean? It means we can hunger and thirst after righteousness. We can keep asking. We can keep seeking. We can keep knocking. And that clearly means praying. It clearly means persevering. And it clearly means that your faith grows. And that your trust grows. Your faith grows and your trust grows. Remember what I said to you early? Do you think God loves it when you trust him? I think it's true. To so what happens to the person who diligently seeks him? You grow, faith grows, but there's something else that happens. Doubt disappears. Sinful and carnal living is replaced by righteous living. A doubting heart becomes a believing heart. So what does the writer of Hebrews invite us to consider by these illustrations? By faith, Abel worships God, and so do we. By faith, Enoch walks with God, and so do we. By faith, Abel offers a sacrifice acceptable to God, and that makes him acceptable to God. And that's exactly what we do. We come to him on the basis of what Jesus has done. Knowing that God is absolutely, positively, 100% content with what Jesus has done for you. You know, I want to put this back in its context again. Who's this person writing to? Who's his audience? The Hebrews. He's writing to the Hebrews. He's asking them Will you worship God on God's terms? Will you walk with God on God's terms by faith? W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote, Faith rests on God, receives from God, responds to God, relies on God, realizes God, rejoices in God, and then reproduces His life, His character. And that's when you know it's biblical faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray. We invite you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. Lord, we invite you to examine our hearts. Lord, we invite you to consider whether or not we're worshiping you in spirit and in truth or whether or not we're worshiping you on our own terms, based on our own imagination based on our own beliefs and desires? And are we willing to walk with you by faith, trusting Christ, knowing, Lord, that as our faith grows, our trust grows, and that when our faith grows and our trust grows, then your pleasure expands. Lord, we know that for some of us, we still struggle with sinful and carnal living. But Lord, we pray that you would replace that with love, with righteous living, and with a believing heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.